The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast Friday edition. I am Alex Kantrowitz, live here, as always on Friday, with Ron John Roy. For our weekly news show, we stream on LinkedIn, we stream on YouTube. If you're on YouTube and this is working, that's cool. But I know we're live on LinkedIn, and we bring this to the podcast feed every single Friday. So we're going to talk about the news. It's going to be a supplement to the weekly Wednesday flagship show, and we're stoked you're here, Ron John. I'm stoked that you're here. Welcome I did back. not know. I did not know the big technology theme could go on that long, but uh, I liked <laughs> where it's going. Look, as I've said it a couple of times when we've done these live shows, it um, it's definitely going to take a few tries for me to figure out how to do both the recording on Riverside for the podcast and streaming, and we'll also take questions. And that's a situation where you just end up getting a very very long <laughs> intro as I'm checking all the settings, but hey, look, that's what music's for, and uh, and now the game did the really job. gets going. It did the job. So our discussion today is titled, I hope it's titled on LinkedIn, but it should be titled Google Layoffs, Netflix, and Davos, and we're going to talk all, we're going to talk about all those big stories. Let's start with the big news of the week, Google Layoffs. What did you make of the fact that the company is cutting 6% of its workforce down uh, 12,000 people. It's it's just one of a number of layoffs. We've talked about Amazon, Microsoft, Meta. Apple hasn't done anything yet. But when you think about where Google's headed, does this tell you anything other than the fact that the company just needed to increase margins? I think from the Google layoffs have a number of really interesting layers to it. I think the 12K layoffs they just announced is likely much more just in line with Meta laying off 11,000 people, Microsoft 10,000, just trying to cut costs, trying to, and we can definitely get into uh, reverse their extrapolations from their growth during COVID. But I think we had touched on this last week. What are the new threats to Google search? Are there from ChatGPT? Um, there was a piece in the New York Times about Sergey and Larry might be back after all this time, just flying around on private islands and going to Burning Man. So, so I think uh, Google is definitely at a very interesting place right now relative to where they've been over the last decade. Right, and Larry and Sergey are back. Like that is a thing that's happening now. They're in the offices working with them. The thing that I find interesting about Google, so of course, their profits were down 27% in the last quarter. Their margin shrank from 32 uh, what are they margin shrank from? I just had it right down. Their operating margin was 32%. It shrank to 25% in the third quarter. So they had to do that. And I think in some ways that's completely different than or dissociated from the fact that they're now getting challenged from Microsoft with this chat GPT thing. In fact, they do have the technology that's better. And it's to me a question of will, of whether they will decide to release this in some way. The New York Times story that broke today said that they have about 20 different applications that they want to use uh, this type of technology to release. And the question is, you know, what were they waiting for? Obviously, there were some safety concerns, but the fact that OpenAI is doing this right now does make them look a little silly. And that will be the challenge, I think, for Google is, can you used to be the safest place in technology, right? People would say that you'd go to Google and retire. No employees ever really felt threatened there and can you now really shift the culture to a point where you feel like a more existential threat you have to be willing to take more risks and you have to keep people motivated knowing that you're no longer as safe as you used to be so i wonder if you think that's a net good or a net negative i think okay so so uh for at margins i write with uh john daruk and he wrote a piece this morning sent out around gpt and its threat to google and he touched on to me, what's one of the most important parts of this entire story, monopoly. And I think, I think this is a huge net good. And I think Google 
has not evolved search, has been building all this technology internally and has not released it because of being protected. Because when you have a, bill, a business that prints money in a monopoly over search, you don't need to actually release this type of technology. So only because OpenAI actually released ChatGPT and scared them and showed the world that this type of technology is possible to use in this way. And we all started talking about the risks to Google search are they under a code red? Otherwise we would have, I mean, this technology, as far as we know, could have just sat in a back room, like, I think, was it Kodak that was famous for, uh, you know, creating amazing innovation and, or Xerox, and then it just, you know, lived in a laboratory. So I, I think this is a hugely positive thing for just technology overall for competition that the only reason Google is rushing and scrambling to answer this is because it's out there and because uh, someone is doing it and they see a threat, which they haven't forever. Right. And the, with the layoffs, do you think that that impacts their ability at all to run after this? No, no, no. I, I, I don't I think, think so either. I think the layoffs are 100% around focus. And I think, I mean, again, at any of these large companies the, that have been doing everything in the world over the last decade that are now, you know, Every movie you watch, winning Oscars, uh, Monday, Thursday night football, I'm picking on Amazon here, but uh, Google is also doing any number of different initiatives. I think uh, it's time to focus. If they have the technology, if they're a artificial intelligence models, they invented the transformer. If they're for real, it's time to actually put that into action. Yeah, well, I think without a doubt that is going to come into action. Now, the secondary question that we ask here is, how did this company let this happen? Roy Bahat was on a few weeks ago talking about how companies really didn't mind about overhiring during during the COVID times because even if they overextended tremendously, they could just do a layoff like they're doing now, cut 10,000 people, get cost back online and have taken their best shot at the market, whereas they would risk losing the market. And I also wrote about this after the conversation in big technology. That being said, do you think that that's actually what happened? Oh, uh, completely. Actually, in your piece, I think it was Roy's quote, it was one of the tragedies of companies is that a risk that may make sense for the company to take may be catastrophic for employees. And that's what happened. They they had to take these risks. If your competitors are, if everyone is growing at you know astronomical rates, 10, 20%, even for a trillion dollar business, and your competitors are investing in every new field and doubling down on every all their infrastructure, for you to not pursue that, the investors would have been furious. So, so I do think everyone is to blame. I, clearly, like the idea that a Sundar might have said in 2020 fall, you know what, we're growing, but I'm going to be prudent about it. Obviously, in hindsight, that would look good, but. I mean, this is uh, the investment community's pressure on the companies, the companies themselves and their own hubris. Every employee taking a job at one of the companies to get, you know, work for the most comfortable, lucrative uh, trillion dollar big tech giants in the world. I think it, there's no simple blame that it was it was just a mistake on the part of a few people. Right. And one of the companies also going through some change this week is is Netflix. Actually, before we get to Netflix, I just want to throw this out there. I'm kind of curious what, what you think. I think Google is actually, you know, obviously in a vulnerable spot, but I think that the threat from GPT is real, but probably a little overblown. And it's in this position where it's really been hit hard because of an advertising pullback. And that's probably going to be the first thing that comes back when the economy rebounds. So I kind of think Google is a prime candidate for a rebound and is not in as dire straits as some might say. I vehemently there? disagree, Alex. Yeah, why? Um, <laughs> well, I, so in the piece this morning from John, he, he he went into recipes. And I'm sure many of our listeners, I cook a good amount, have Googled recipes and are used to that ridiculous format where someone basically gives their entire life history and runs a thousand ads so to get to the yes, recipe. it's the most annoying thing on the internet. And that distortion... That That is completely driven by economic distortions where Google benefits financially. The publisher 
who does that will benefit financially. And the only person hurt is the user, but because Google has a monopoly, the user just gets screwed and has to cycle through someone's life story to get to just, you know, some ingredients in a couple of steps. I think that's where ChatGPT shows just how big of a risk because Google's entire business model has been built around these kind of distorted economic incentives. And the internet grew around that, around these uh, distorted incentives. And we get these ridiculous recipe websites. And I think that's gone. That's, that's forever going to change, especially you take something like a recipe, the most simple structured, potentially unchanging piece of information that is a simple answer to a simple question. You know, that's the kind of stuff that is search is going to change. And I think Google, unless they they're going to have to rethink their entire business to answer that threat. Okay, I've already started going to chat GPT for some of these things, even asking, like throwing in a bunch of different stances and say, now spit out what this person is politically. It's been interesting. Okay, I, I will recalibrate what I said. Maybe chat GPT is that threat. But it will take a long time to get there. So I think short term, it's probably going to look really good for Google. Long term is where the threat is. Let's see how they respond. All right. Now let's talk about Netflix. Netflix to me is like one of the most interesting companies going. It crushed its uh, expectation to add survi uh, survivors, subscribers, <laughs> adding. That's what happens on Fridays. Adding 7.5 million thereabouts. They were expected to add four. So almost double expectations in the fourth quarter of 2022 which they just reported on earnings now as that happens reed hastings their co-ceo is going to step down ted sarandos is going to remain co-ceo they're elevating greg peters who is their chief operating officer to co-ceo and reed, reed is gonna now go to the executive chairman role it seems like a complete mess they've contracted subscribers last year what what is happening with netflix i mean how do you read this i Okay, so I will forever give Netflix credit and Reed Hastings credit after, do you remember Quickster? Yes. All right, and not Quibi. We talked about that last week. Quickster, 2011. <laughs> uh, I, I still think this is one of the most brilliant, like I'm going to say courageous CEO moves where Netflix, he rec Hastings recognized the future is streaming, but we have this very profitable, lucrative, but slowly declining DVD business. So I'm going to take an ill-fated, not fully thought out uh, move to split our businesses and the DVD business would then be called Quickster and then Netflix would remain the name of the streaming business. It it was not well executed but to me the fact that they 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 said we're betting the entire company i'm going to stake my reputation they reneged on it and then slowly phased out the dvd business but or actually maybe it still exists i'm not sure um but i, I think like they recognize and all these questions around transformation what is google going to do if you see your search business is threatened but it's still highly profitable and lucrative how do you make a courageous move to actually build for the future and i think Netflix is clearly right now streaming is in a very interesting place right now where a few years ago, you know, barely any competitors for them. They owned it. Now everyone has been losing billions of dollars, Paramount, HBO, you know, it's just been uh, it, the, the, the move has been try to lose and bleed money to just build out content and build subscriber bases. So I think this is going to, streaming is the, the most interesting place in business right now. Um, and I think, Netflix, I wouldn't count them out given what they've done in the past. They're able to make these kind of moves and when needed. Why do you think streaming is the most interesting place in business? Oh, Just because of the competition? Yeah, because yeah, again, competition is makes things interesting. Look at Google and ChatGPT. So, uh, so, so, so you have you know you have the OG Netflix who also you know was just printing money through debt and you know like whatever you know anyone could get a show on there or an entire series renewed for multiple seasons then hbo max comes in um under with the deep pockets of discovery paramount plus is coming in peacock is coming in hulu i i i think disney is now trying to buy out the remainder of hulu because it was originally a joint venture everyone is involved investing and as a consumer i mean i'm sure you might feel it too 
even trying to keep track of every streaming service or know where I can find a specific show or what I or want to do. even which ones on I'm paying for is tough. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so this would point to the idea that Netflix is screwed because it was valued and it built based on this idea that it would have a monopoly, not only a monopoly on viewers, but a monopoly potentially on content. Because if you were going to try to sell to a streaming service, it was the one buyer. No longer the case. Yeah, but but Netflix has been playing this game longer than everyone else and has been gone through you know multiple cycles of this whereas and this is Netflix business when Disney plus if it starts continues to bleed money at a certain point Bob Iger might say well you know our theme parks are profitable is this really driving more tickets over there or you know how do we factor this in with our ownership of ABC or ESPN like there, there's a million other discovery is a behemoth right now um so so every other company has any number of revenue sources that are competing with its streaming services or at least being held against it versus Netflix, this is your business. So I think I still, you know, who comes out of this, you know, just massacre over the last few years, I think, I still think they could be okay. Right. And one inter interesting thing is Netflix has shown it can be profitable here where the others haven't. Yeah, exactly. This is their business. They, you know, it, they, they, they have been bleeding money in order to compete. So who will be the last one standing? I mean, I would still give them more of a chance than the others. By the way, we have a nice number of live viewers here. So thanks to everyone who's tuned in. If you have questions, you can just drop them in the stream and Ranjan and I will get to them as we go. Also, if you're listening and you want to take part, we're going we're gonna to do this every Friday. As long as you guys keep listening, we'll keep doing this every Friday for, uh, at 11 a.m., Pacific time and 2 p.m. Eastern time. So feel free to come and tune in on LinkedIn. We'll have events. They'll be streamed on my page. Uh, and we'd love to have you there. We'd love to have your questions. If you're listening, not only can you expect this on the feed, but you can expect it live during the day. And if you want to stop by, catch a bit of it, catch it all, we're, we're happy to have you. We'd love to have you. So one more question about, about Netflix. I, I just think that the competition, though, is, is the real issue. Yes, this is their business, but it's almost unfair because Amazon can lose money on Prime Video and still be happy with the results because of the spillover to retail. Disney can lose money on Disney Plus, but still be happy with the results because of what it will see in the box office potentially, but also what it will see in the theme parks. So I just think that it's gonna. It's there's a reason why Netflix has gone through this tough time. Now it's trying to basically run its run the company with three people. It's gonna yeah, be hard yeah, to pull I, off. I will say the weirdest part of this to me was they had co-CEOs and then Reed went up to executive chairman and then they replaced him with another, the other, I think. How do they make Craig? decisions? Yeah, well, that's what co-CEOs usually I kind of assume is a temporary thing, not when one person leaves, you actually then replace them with another co-CEO. But again, in terms of the competition, I think this is this is a competitive market. That's what makes it exciting. That's what we're so not used to seeing this level of cutthroat competition at this scale in because over the past decade in most markets that have been concentrated, that have been monopolistic, that I think that's what makes it exciting. And remember, on one hand, having a cash cow in another part of the business, theme parks for Disney, Amazon web services and funneling that money over to Prime. By the same token, the moment one of those businesses exogenously has an issue, that can also stream over to the their streaming services, feed over to their streaming services. So, so I think it there's good and bad, but it does not standalone mean that you have a huge advantage. And I think again, Netflix, this is their business. This is what they have done for longer than anybody. I think they, I still, I'm, I'm, I'm pro Netflix here. I'm going to throw one more dart because yep. there is a view out there that this is a mirage. And that's coming from folks who've said that Netflix work with uh, service providers like Verizon to give away Netflix for a year or something like that. And that helped inflate their subscriber statistics, which is responsible for their stock rocketing up this week. And the thing that is the real interesting part is that they met their revenue expectation, but their subscriber their subscriber number almost doubled what they were expecting. How do you meet your revenue expectation 
but the subscriber number goes up. It does seem like there's some tricks there, doesn't there? I I, I saw that too. I think uh, they were, yeah, they met their exact revenue target and then doubled subscriber numbers. So, so the giving away one year free as a Verizon customer, I agree there can definitely be some pretty aggressive promotional behavior to juice those subscriber numbers. But is that really different than Apple trying to just inject me with Apple Music every time I open up any device, even though I'm a loyal Spotify customer? Is that different than Disney, you know, like uh, you subscribe to one thing and suddenly I'm getting marketing for Hulu or ESPN Plus? I think it, it's a platform play. It's uh, there when you don't own the entire ecosystem, you have to be creative about your partnerships. I think right. overall, to, to me, meeting the revenue target and, and also for context, this was a messy quarter because they said going forward, they're not going to break out subscriber numbers because the advertising based business. And again, for clarification, Netflix now has an ad supported free tier or is it cheaper or is it free? It's cheaper. Uh, it's cheaper. It's still cheaper. pretty Sorry, expensive. Yeah. It's still it's pretty, just a yeah, couple yeah, dollars like, cheaper. like Hulu. Yeah. Um, and so because there's all these different now there will be an entire advertising revenue stream. The, it overcomplicates how subscriber what subscribers mean to the company, so they're not going to break it out. So I think maybe this was a last quarter of kind of a messy subscriber number, and that's okay. We'll just right. look at the revenue. Yeah, and I I thought I thought the fact that they would stop breaking out subscriber number was another bad sign. Clearly, I'm the the devil here, and you're the angel no, on the no, Netflix no, story. No, I mean, I, but yeah, <laughs> the reason why I thought it was an issue is because you're you're you only don't tell people what the numbers are if you don't expect them to be good. That's just sort of my philosophy on this. Your ad supported tier ostensibly will help juice those numbers because you'll churn less. Well, you're not on. really in the Netflix had to return money to advertisers last quarter, according to some reports. Le, le, so you should in, be focusing on the subscriber numbers unless you're really concerned. Yeah, it's always tough. I, I, as a universal rule, hiding numbers either means it's something very good or it's very bad. <laughs> Again, remember AWS, we never saw forever. And that's because it was so lucrative and basically funding a money losing e-commerce operation. They didn't want everyone to know that. Um, so yeah, I, I, maybe that is a stretch to say there's a corollary to Netflix right now in subscriber numbers, but again, I think uh, revenue is all that's going to matter, and we're, we're going to see. I think to move to fundamentally transform your business from pure subscription to working in advertising, it's not going to be as you know straight line and smooth sailing. Every media company, even you as a publisher, everyone thinks about that. It's not, it's not a simple equation and easy to do. So, so I think it's not going to be easy, but. If I'm betting, I'm still thinking Netflix is going strong in a few years. Ranjan Roy is here with us. This is our traditional Friday episode where we talk about the news this week's episode, tech layoffs, tech shakeups, and Davos. So we've done tech layoffs, we've done tech shakeups, and we do Davos on the other side of this break. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm DC Marshall. Hi, I'm Mita Malik. We are the co-host of the Brown Table Talk podcast, where we discuss how to help women of color thrive in their workplaces. And we invite allies to join us to help women of color win at work. We have a seat waiting for you. Subscribe to Brown Table Talk wherever you enjoy podcasts. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast with Ranja and Roy from Margins. We're streaming live on LinkedIn. It's great to see so many people have joined us, joined the stream. Again, if you have questions, feel free to drop them. We'll take them at the end. And now we get into the Davos. So first of all, we have a lot. I feel like there's a, a remarkable obsession with Davos. And I think it's interesting that all of the global elites gather in this one place and uh, you can kind of run into them in the promenade. I went last year. I wasn't part of the actual 
uh, confab, but I was doing some live podcasts off to the side, and I and I thought it was, was pretty interesting. And, Wait, uh, and as someone who's never been to Davos, tell me what what does that mean? Promenade, confab. Okay, can you explain yeah. that a bit? Because I I, so. I I just picture people in big uh, winter coats who are important and powerful. So that's basically what it is. So I'm going to try to pull up the access, uh, levels here because I think it's kind of hilarious to describe what actually happens in Davos, but basically inside Davos, it's called, it's, it's they, everyone calls it Davos, but it's really a gathering of the world economic forum, which started off as a European business group and then started to move more and more towards social causes. And so that's why you end up having world leaders together with business leaders. And it's a very unique event. Now, not everybody is allowed into the actual conference arena and you need to be accredited for it. And Ben Smith has done a great job in uh, this Semaphore newsletter. By the way, Ben is going to come on the show in a couple of weeks. I'm pretty stoked for that. So just something for folks to pay attention to. Maybe if you're not a subscriber and subscribe, we're going to get that up uh, kind of soon. But he's had a great uh, series of dispatches from Davos. And, and so here's the... Um, the access levels. So he, he takes a picture of this sign. No access for red badges, red stripe badges, yellow stripe badges, affiliate badges, affiliate session support staff badges, and hotel badges. And here's what he writes. There are about a dozen, I think this is Ben writing it, but it's from his newsletter. So either him or his staff. There are about, there are about a dozen types of badges uh, this year. They include a couple of all access categories, white for participants and blue for forum staff. There's also a Byzantine hierarchy that ranges from orange journalists who can who can access the Congress Center but not attend sessions, to red drivers, to purple for medical and technical staff, orange purple for production staff, brown for aides to white badges, green for other members of the entourage, light blue for forum contractors, and orange hotel badges that just let you into certain hotels. So it's a very hierarchical structured system where you are able to participate in these meetings with the business leaders and, and the... Um, and, and the world leaders and the reason why it's interesting i mean of course there's so much controversy around it that this is like kind of the, it's viewed by the right wing and left wing as like uh, uh this, this cabal that meets to plan and there's this uh saying that's been talked about attributed to klaus schwab that you will own nothing and be happy <laughs> and basically people view it as this gathering to ensure that the power structure remains in place in fact there's a, another there's this great quote from peter goodman that I dropped in in our document here, where he talks that talks about. He says more than anything, Davos is a prophylactic against change, an elaborate reinforcement of the status quo, served up as the pursuit of human progress. And Jill Abramson, the former editor of the New York Times, she says it was and is a corrupt circle jerk. So that's sort of like the perspective. So Davos is have a been. Davos is a progress condom, is what we're yeah, we're learning today. Unbelievable. Well, well so, so first of, first of all, the Hearing those access levels, I think, like triggered me more than reading right. Sam Bankman Fried's Substack. There's a um, reason people hate this thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I well, hold on. I, I, to me, starting our conversation today with the tech layoffs, and then trying to connect that because this whole idea of you know, like around the t the layoff side of things, and look at the technology industry by itself. You know, leadership, CEOs, Sundar, Mark Zuckerberg, over-extrapolating and being overly aggressive, and now the everyday workers paying the price for that, and that 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 distance between the two, and then now that Davos actually has that you know ingrained into the actual structure to keep people separated, to keep the highest elite and the CEOs are, you know, like, and it's actually so rules-based and codified. I think uh, it, it it affirms the idea of pro prophylactic against change. I think exactly uh, that, that should be the new branding. Right. And there's this, there's all this talk about doing good for the world. So here's another thing that happened that everyone, they always talk about the climate crisis, right? They talk this year about the poly crisis and they all fly in on private jets. So this is from um, I think Greenpeace wrote this that talked about how, let me just pull it up quickly because I feel like it's important to read. Let's see. Uh, last last year's World Economic Forum that there was, and, and this was a muted one because of, of COVID. There was 1,040 private jet flights <laughs> arrived and departed out of airports uh, serving Davos 
and many of them were short haul flights and they attribute at least 50% uh, to this meeting. So the folks that are going in to talk about saving the planet are taking actions that are not good for the planet. Uh, full disclosure, I took the train in from Zurich after taking a, a <laughs> you, you have done your part. flight. So You have done your part. Yeah, we also missed our stop. I missed my stop. This is kind of a funny story. I missed my stop and it ended up 40 minutes. <laughs> the next stop was 40 minutes down the line. So we had like an hour and a half or two hours uh, to spend with these two psychedelic entrepreneurs oh, <laughs> who were going to right, Davos for right. the psychedelic house. Wait, there, so, were, there was a psychedelic house at there Davos? There was. So, oh. so this is the second part of it. There's this promenade. And the yeah. promenade <laughs> is effectively the street that's next to the place. If you can't get in there, you can hang out on the promenade. And it's nice because it's a small town, so you can actually end up seeing people walking back and forth and bump into them and say hi, maybe ask them questions, ask them to do business with you. I walked into Paul Ryan one night after uh, some event, and I was just like, usually I'd want to talk to you, but I, I'm just going to go back to my hotel. <laughs> like this has been, it was late night, had a couple of drinks. I was like, all right, this is not a good time to start a discussion talk here. Talk to Paul Ryan. And yeah, and so that's that's what, what the promenade is. And, and it's, it's, it's an interesting thing, but yeah, there's definitely like, you talk about, talk about like the values that they put out there and and like the actual world we live in and there's a real disconnect i think I, I, well i do think but i think it's important right now because i think it really does represent all these hugely critical issues again uh you know ceo versus work like a, a capital versus labor management versus workers obviously is become it has been a topic over the past number of years and has only been uh growing in importance environment or greenwashing around esg and environmental credibility obviously is one of one of the other biggest topics in the world and and each one of these things and and that's why i think to me the really interesting part is no actual words or content or ideas that have come out of Davos, at least for, I'm not even sure, is the conference over? Is it's it still now. going? It is done. Yeah, I, I don't know what happened. Nothing. I think I saw, wait, did Larry Summers talk about inflation? Fed's got to stay? Maybe. Like the, it, You it do know about to, one big issue, though, which is glocalization. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did see. This is the kind of stuff I love. Uh, actually... <laughs> So, so there was like a piece on their blog around globalization, global and localization, and how using technologies like digital twins and autonomous robots, you can both be local and still run your supply chains globally. I mean, they got to workshop those a little bit better, I feel. Right. And also, like, <laughs> what's the point of being local? Is that you spark the local economy, that you have jobs, and that the fact that they're pitching autonomous robots as part of this globalization thing it just seems so ridiculous to yeah, me. Yeah, but 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 you know, I can yeah. I, I can feel like because I was reading something uh, in a piece. It was like around how it's changed and how now it's like questioning its entire purpose after the globalization is falling. And it was talking about how in 2013 the theme was resilient dynamism. And it was about trying to bring resilience and uh, dynamism back after the financial crisis and the world had stabilized. And then now you have, and I love that word polycrisis, just because it's the most, it says everything and nothing at the same time. And I feel, uh, I think as someone who has been in content for a long time or thinks about the words they use or has tried to come up with catchy taglines like this i feel so much of this ends up being just around trying to come up with the next big catchphrase and and it's just not landing anymore exactly and it, it, i mean there is it has effectively become you talk about all these issues that we talk about it has become this thing that people hold up and say all right we don't trust the elite and these are some of the reasons i think their communication is definitely part of it their actions are definitely part of it and Let's see. We covered so we covered um, globalization, which I'm glad we did. Polycrisis. <laughs> they also talked about this idea of re-globalization, which I think is interesting. And I think it's a real thing that's happening, where you're going to have come the, the globalization. It's so interesting because re-globalization actually means deglobalization. It basically means countries align and 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 coming into trade agreements, aligning and coming into trade agreements with other countries that reflect their values. So, for instance, moving from China to India when it comes to supply chain, moving away from Russia to Ukraine. So it's a reshuffling of globalization, not the, the move towards localism, but the move towards 
partnering with com- countries. But it's actually really, when you think about it, just this, this split. Of yeah, and, and that that's society. actually, that is Davos. That is like the perfect embodiment of <laughs> what I perceive to be Davos in that it's actually deglobalization, but somehow putting a positive spin on it and calling it re-globalization and it's just a realignment. Actually, my favorite word for that, which I kind of, I kind of, I'm not totally against is friend shoring because you've had near shoring, offshoring. Near shoring is bringing things back onto your own uh, domestic economy. Offshoring, we all know. Friend shoring is the US moving or Apple moving from China to India, things like that. So I can kind of work with friend shoring, I think. Friend shoring, I'll take friend shoring over reglobalization, which or actually globalization. means deglobalization. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I'm glad to have missed Davos this year. Although I, I had a good time last year, I'm glad to have seen it. Even though I didn't actually make my way into the stripe badge type of place, it was it was fun to be there. It was a great place to do interviews with with people uh, who I might not normally get on the podcast. Nick Clegg came on at the at Davos, so from uh, that standpoint, it's pretty cool as a journalist. But the the there's I think real reason to be skeptical of the organization and the. Um, and the the stuff that they spout out. I'll so. admit, I wouldn't not go. <laughs> I, uh, right. It's, yeah, it's, it's good to it's, see. It's still something. But uh, yeah, it's definitely, I remember like 10, 12 years ago, I was working in uh, finance and emerging markets. And like, I mean, the uh, the dream would have been being invited to Davos and speaking at Davos. And that, that I feel, is is long gone. Yeah, I was going to say, after this podcast, I don't know if they're going to have well, yeah. <laughs> us on stage next year talking about the return of globalization. globalization. But who knows? Who knows? You never know. Got to bring all, all stakeholders in, as, as they might say. So let's, let's end talking about media. Very busy week for the media. Let's go, let's go uh, first to the layoffs at Vox. And, uh, and now Vice is going to be selling. I'll just say this. Uh, as someone who runs a ad ad supported publishing business, I think that this is all residual from the second half of 2022. I'm saying this because it was extremely difficult to sell ads in the second half of 2022. In fact, there was a moment where I said, "Look, if this was a scaled business, and it wasn't just me and some people that I work with, um, but not full time employees, I'd be looking to lay off. I'd be looking to cut costs because the revenue just weren't wasn't coming in." And advertising had dried up, and I wondered if it, how long it was going to keep going like this, because if it did, it might be real trouble for the business. Now, advertising luckily has come back, I think, in a big way in the beginning of this year, and I, I, I'm kind of optimistic about the rest of the year, given the way the first quarter has gone for big technology. So I'm kind of curious what you think here about about these layoffs uh, and what what the media industry might be in store for now that. You know, it's not just Vox, of course. Like that's the, what happened today, um, and for for those following at home, they're laying off like something like seven percent of the company. But uh, this has been a, 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 something that's going on across many different publications. Vox, BuzzFeed, of course, is always included in that conversation. Washington Post is having a situation where it might do layoffs. I'm curious what your read is on on this, and and whether it's going to be a blip for media or this is the sign of even worse things to come. I would say because the names you're you know listing out Vice, Vox, BuzzFeed, all the darlings of the mid 2010s uh, startup media getting val- raising hundreds of millions of dollars, getting valued into the billions, just kind of like eye popping numbers. I think that world is so long gone that I I don't think any of those companies will ever come into what they were supposed to be and still are unfortunately operating at a scale that they, like you said, if you're a scaled business, Q4 last year, even into Q1 this year, you were never supposed to be that big potentially. But on the other hand, you know, the semaphore we brought up, I think there's pretty interesting up and coming media startups. But semaphore, good, good point. They yeah. said this week they they had raised twenty five million dollars and ten of it came from San Francisco. So so they might have to ch- change, yeah, alter their cost structures a bit. Hopefully <laughs> they were a bit prudent going into this. But but I do I, I think I right now publishing advertising is going to 
not rebound completely the way it was, especially digital advertising, you know, in late 2020, 2021, the same problem that everyone is facing in anything digital that was started our conversation around tech layoffs. But I think publishing, rethinking the model of what advertising is and how they approach it, a lot of people are getting a lot more creative. And I do think, I think the ones who figure it out, whether it's whatever combination of subscription, uh, affiliate fees and commerce revenue, um, display advertising, even though that feels like it's long gone. Um, I think there, there, there are people who will figure it out. And let's not remember, forget, uh, you know, Facebook and Apple tracking and what hurt cookie-based advertising Publishers have an advantage here that the advertising they run is contextual by definition. Your publication has a brand and the ads that the like use your pitch to advertisers is this isn't some, uh, you know, like purely data driven cookie based thing that could be cut off by Apple tomorrow. That was what Facebook did and meta depend on you. You have a different model. So I, I think people are going to figure it out. But the, the, the ones, again, you think about organizationally a vice or a vox, that kind of that stuff's tough. If you're on top of the world and to be brought down to kind of reassert yourself, that's, you know, that's like a Harvard Business Review transformation story versus just uh, figuring out a business model. Most definitely. Maybe instead of journalists, they'll just all employ ChatGPT. I know that CNET was working to have ChatGPT or some other AI write its stories. And <laughs> this week it uh, ended up having to post a long correction and because there were some serious inaccuracies. So obviously the AI hallucinated itself uh, into the story. And by the way, that's a good moment to plug. On Wednesday, Jan LeCun is coming on the show. We are going to talk about generative AI. He is uh, a professor at NYU and also the chief scientist at Facebook, a chief AI scientist at Facebook. So we talk a lot about AI hallucinating in particular because Facebook had a program Galactica uh, that hallucinated its way out of existence. But I'm curious what you think about the fact that, that is this a good news for journalists that CNET tried to have AI write some of the stories and it ended up just being such a disaster. It had to apologize and probably lost some credibility in the process. The AI went to the psychedelic house at Davos, apparently. That's clearly what happened. <laughs> um, I, uh, that's gotta be uh, the episode title, by the way. That's I, so so CNET, what they did to me is like the exact nightmare scenario around generative AI and publishing. And, and we started this conversation talking about Google's business model being under threat. And this is exactly a, 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 an example of that where CNET, what, one of the things they were doing is essentially rewriting articles or taking like the top section of an article and rewriting it because what a, the benefit you get as a publisher is you republish it's technically original content and from an SEO perspective it gets juiced up and is considered new content so they're taking recycling content for SEO value using ChatGPT that sucks that's like the worst right. user experience it's not it, it's not good for anyone except for them at that moment, but not even their long-term brands, not for the people working there. So, so I do think this is, people need to watch what they're doing and realize it's probably happening more and more in different places. And this stuff, this stuff is getting more urgent. I think uh, it's already, it's happening. <laughs> it's happening. Yeah. The one thing I'll say is I'm glad that it turned out so poorly for CNET because it's otherwise it would have maybe encouraged others to start using AI to write these stories. And it's much better, in my opinion, to have real humans doing it yeah, for, but, but for the sake it, of all of us. I, I From the story that came out, I believe it was employees who had leaked this. It wasn't like users were reporting that, you know, this stuff doesn't make sense. This is useless. This is bad content. Because think about it, as the average user, right. this happens. You just go to the next page or you don't even process it you come across so much bad content and the publication day. that broke the that, that's been all over the news this publication called futurism they made a great point which is that google hasn't penalized cnet for doing this and that is going to be a boon for seo farmers all over the place looking for a signal of the way you know that the using ai generated content to populate pages is gonna is gonna turn out so yeah and, i think it's pretty interesting and that comes back to what is the threat to Google? It's the supply side. 
It's the idea that the amount of content that's going to, bad content that's going to explode is going to existentially threaten this entire search model that they've built, the business side and the algorithmic side of ranking. So I think this is why I'm bullish Netflix, bearish Google, if we're uh, <laughs> wrapping up uh, the earlier parts of the conversation. Right. All right, folks, if you have questions, this is our our real last opportunity to ask them. So drop them in to the chat if you have them. Let's just talk about uh, bad content to end, which is the fact that Robinhood is going to start a new news subsidiary and ostensibly cover financial news. It, it's being run by Josh Topolsky, who stood up the, uh, I think he was one of the, Ver, the, Vox, the Verge founders, Verge co-founders. Yeah. Uh, and he's worked at Bloomberg as the head of digital. And now he's going to go run a blog for well, new subsidiary, excuse me, for for Robinhood. And what makes it amazing is during the whole GameStop rebellion, he tweeted literally Robinhood app just told the world that you can play until someone bigger than you doesn't like the game anymore, brand suicide. And now he's there working for it for their content arm. So are, speaking of bullish or bearish, are you bullish or bearish of Robinhood's new content play? I am internally bearish on anything Robin Hood, but it's tough because I, I'm the first person to say, and I, I, you know, a typical Robin Hood user, why not, if they're already going to the app, why not provide them with valuable content to make them stay? It's such a clean thing for a business and it makes so much sense. And especially around financial news, it, it, it's, it's, it's theoretically perfect. It's if a management consultant could come up with that deck and it would sound so good. However, Robinhood's entire problem to date has been everything around the app was designed to make you trade more because that is how they make more money. And, you know, the leaderboards, the UX, the, the, the and they, the, there's been plenty of backlash around this. So the idea that there's going to be a highly, you know, independent, journalistic, integrity-driven financial news site, I don't think makes a ton of sense. But to their credit, Robinhood, they actually bought Market Snacks. It was a newsletter that was up and coming a few years ago. So they'd made a play in media before. And now the Market Slacks newsletter, it is funny because I think they said there's tens of millions of readers, but everyone who had a Robinhood account was by default right. opted into Market Snacks, or now it's called Robinhood Snacks. So obviously that's a nice way to- And the podcast is popular too. Yeah, yeah. So. And again, like you can make pretty good content, but the content will always- heavily by definition have to be buy stocks, buy options, buy everything, because that's the way we our business is actually going to make money is that you are actively trading and feeling good about the market, especially for retail traders. So, so I think that adds such a weird element of conflict to the entire idea of it that, I mean, how it grows and who's reading it and what they're doing with that information. I mean, uh, I'm curious to see. Again, Josh Topolsky at Bloomberg did some really interesting things. The Verge, obviously, is still around as one of the you know best tech publications. So, so it it could be interesting. Right. We do get some questions. Do you have a couple minutes to stick around, or you got to yeah, roll? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Questions okay. from LinkedIn on a Friday. That's great. We'll take them. Thanks everyone who's dropped them in. So first of all, it's kind of a comment from Grant Walker, but let's take it. He says, generative AI copywriting is great for ideation and frameworking, but needs a human touch. At this point, at least, gaming the system will pretty much always catch up with you. I totally agree with that. I think that once you, uh, if you rely entirely on these chatbots, you're going to just get really subpar writing. And I know like the person that plagiarized me using AI did a terrible job on their story. And I've actually been like, I don't really know what how to lead this story off. Let me ask ChatGPT. And, and I, I mean, haven't been impressed at all about the quality of writing and decided that humans still have a pretty big advantage over these things as Unfor far as like content creation goes. Unfortunately, though, Grant, try to search for any recipe on the internet and the internet still remains full of subpar content. That That's still, right. It has its place in the, in the entire uh, ecosystem. We have another great question from Laura Vestal. Uh, who asks, regarding the threats to Google, what is your take on the threat to search from social platforms like TikTok? I think this is going to be the last question we take, but it's a really good one because it, it shows that Google is kind of under threat in two ways. 
One is these people asking questions uh, or, or doing traditional search queries inside TikTok. And then the chat GPT issue as well. Now, the more we talk about it, the more I'm like, Google has some significant long-term threats. Yeah, they, and actually that's a really good point because we didn't even bring that up that TikTok on the actual kind of like content and culture search Amazon's ad business has been exploding. So like e-commerce and product search, um, it, you know, the, there there are a number of other places where people start their search on the internet. And, and I do think it is, it's a testament to Google search has gotten worse and worse and worse. There's a time, I honestly, for most, like anything shopping related, anything trying to get qualitative information, I add Reddit to the end of my Google search because the goal is actually to end up on Reddit and find some thread that's going to give me the right information I want. Yeah. Uh, so I'm still it's starting on Google, but little by little, uh, all of these things, you know, yeah, they're getting hit from every side. I think Larry and Sergey, they're back. <laughs> Hopefully they can back in town. figure something out. Let's end on this. More vulnerable big tech company, Meta or Google? <sighs> oh, that's a good one. I think if... Mark Zuckerberg just tones down the word metaverse. If it's just one hint of saying, you know what, maybe we'll maybe speaking we'll, of the, the Quickster thing, if he yeah, changes yeah, yeah. it back to Facebook and cuts investment down by one billion a year, I mean, the stock I, is through I, the roof. I'm buying everyone, <laughs> and, and the thing is, their advertising business. And we talked about this last week. It's you know at least uh, anecdotally recovering. We'll see in the earnings report, but. Uh, I, if all he has to just do is take that one step and say, you know what? I like VR. It was cool, but this is not, we're not going to all be sitting in meetings with helmets on and everyone would be happy. But until then, I still think meta given the amount of spending on the, the, uh, what is even the metaverse reality division, I think still is a bit more vulnerable than Google, which is, has a monopoly that's a bit under threat, but Larry and Sergey are back, so. Well, Ranjan, thank you so much for joining. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. I feel like um, I always learn a ton and it's fun to go back and forth. And the, the listeners will, will hold us accountable here. Yeah, who's right about Google? Who's right about Netflix? Who's right about ChatGPT? It'll be fun to keep talking about this week after week. Send us your questions on LinkedIn. Yeah, really stoked that we got some great questions yeah, this week. I love if anyone's watching, send us a question yes. next time. Thank you. So again, we'll do these every Friday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central European time, as long as I'm here. So anyway, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. We'll be back on Wednesday with a new episode with Jan LeCun. Until then, take care and have, have a good weekend. All right, we'll see you next time on Big Technology Podcast.